We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded as the first storytellers, the first communities and the first creators of Australian culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 4 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Welcome back. Welcome to 2024. I hope everyone had an amazing New Year break and everyone's feeling well rested for a great new year ahead. I'm really looking forward to 2024. I think there's so much incredible stuff coming down the calendar. I can't wait to see what projects are produced and all of the different work that people work on in architecture this year. I'm really looking forward to it. In this episode, Kimberly Huey is speaking with registered architect and director of Architecture Architecture, Nick James. Nick enjoys a hands-on approach, building a strong rapport with clients, consultants and builders alike. Socially inclusive design is a strong driver in Nick's work, always seeking opportunities to engage with the broader community, no matter the scale of the project. And in this episode, Nick and Kim talk in detail about Architecture Architecture's involvement in the urban coop building in Nightingale Village, which Architecture Architecture designed. Let's jump in. Firstly, Nick, thank you so much for joining here in Architecture Podcast Season 4. I believe you have told me you have been on it earlier on in the early days, so it's quite nice to have you back again. Yeah, thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) So for this season, I think we did put an ERI for architects to pitch in the topics that they would like for this season. And in this case, Architecture Architecture would like to talk about Urban Coop or would like to introduce Urban Coop with the community as well. So from my understanding, Owen Coop is part of the Nightingale Village, is that correct? That's correct. It's one of the six apartment buildings within the village. Mm -hmm. And a bit of the context, I'd like to know how did that happen? Because I'm sure many people would know about Nightingale that start off from a Breathe Architects project and then it eventually expanded. But what was the decision for it to come together within a cluster? Yeah, I think Urban Coop was formed back in about 2008. Mm-hmm. So I think they were initially really struggling to get traction in how to deliver their co-housing community. Mm-hmm. And this project was a collaboration with Breathe Architecture and they'd been speaking with Jeremy at Breathe um, kind of in the early days, maybe back in about 2010 about how they might deliver it. And there wasn't really any vehicle that they could find to Mm -hmm. deliver the project. So eventually kind of those conversations evolved um, and Nightingale was in its early days. And then it was kind of recognised it was an opportunity to sort of bring Nightingale and Overcoop together Mm -hmm. to enable them to sort of deliver the project. Yeah, because from my understanding, I noticed Urban Coop was talking about the co-housing community. So was that community in itself quite big or are you able to elaborate on what the demographic was? Yeah, yeah, the community, uh, you know, it started with, the idea started with maybe four or five or six people, you know, back in sort of 2008. By the Mm -hmm. time we jumped on board in about 2015, Mm. I don't know the exact member numbers, but it could have been, say, up to 80 people. Oh, wow. And then they were sort of split into two groups, which they dubbed near and tall and (laughs) far and wide. And the near and tall group were interested in a co-housing building closer to the city in a vertical arrangement, whereas the far and wide group were uh, looking for for more open space, more like on the periphery of Melbourne, so a bit more spread out as communities. So 
And then I guess within that group itself, there's all kinds of demographics, um, you know, all sorts of age groups, singles, couples, families, yeah, and a multitude of kind of backgrounds as well. For the Urban Coop in particular, was that, because you talked about the two distinguished groups, so is it all right for me to assume that you design predominantly for the tall near and tall near and tall yeah yeah we did so once we were we were engaged by the effectively by the near and tall group okay to deliver that um that kind of inner city mm-hmm. yeah apartment style co-housing mm-hmm. yeah. so in terms of saying that it was around 2015 when you were brought on board so now that we are in 2023 yeah. which is quite a long process yeah. in itself are you able to elaborate of how did the team came to be how you were approached and yeah all of that process yeah. in the works um yeah so we came through it because back in 2015 was still a relatively young practice at kind of three or four years we had as a practice had invested in Nightingale One, so through that kind of developed a relationship with Breed Architecture. Mm-hmm. Breed Architecture um, asked us if we were interested in collaborating with them on the Urban Coop building, like engaging with that community group. And yeah, we we're super enthusiastic to be to be part of that. Even in those, even in that beginning, we weren't sure quite how it was going to be delivered. But there was still no, there was no site. It hadn't a kind of officially joined with Nightingale as a collaboration. All those things kind of evolved mm. from 2015 onwards. So, yeah, 2015 to 20. I mean, everyone moved in last year, so it was just end up being a seven-year project. Um, many sites were investigated <laughs> um, through those years before actually landing on what ended up being. Um, the Nightingale Village project. Mm. Are you able to talk about why that area or is that a yeah. more of a confidential? No, no, no. That's, um, well, I think, you know, Nightingale 1, It's so it's very close to the Nightingale 1 mm-hmm. building and Nightingale has scooped up a number of sites within that Brunswick precinct. So mm. the opportunity came up for a very large site in Brunswick mm. that ultimately came the Nightingale Village. There was that idea of critical mass to be able to deliver originally what was going to be seven buildings within that precinct was very exciting. So it ended up becoming part of that Nightingale Village, which also involved initially six other practices, came down to five others, mm-hmm. as uh, a parcel of land was sold back to the council mm. to create a pocket park. That's interesting in that being able to collaborate obviously with free architecture and as you mentioned that there were other practices involved so in terms of the brief then when you were commissioned or when you were invited to on this collaborative journey um what were the requirements and also what was the communication like between the practices yeah sorry yeah so we we did spend some time defining the roles of you know, breathe architecture and architecture within mm-hmm. the collaboration. So otherwise it could all become a bit of a mess on, on <laughs> who's doing doing what. The key thing that we shared very closely was was client engagement, client communication. So it was really important that, that both practices were part of that the whole way through. And then in terms of kind of the practical division of of um, tasks, breathe kind of took control of the external form, the built form of the building, whereas us architecture, architecture really focused on the interiors 
of the project mm -hmm. and the communal spaces, um, the apartment layouts and apartment fit-outs. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was like, yeah, the way we sort of divided up the task, but we were both very much there the whole way at all the client meetings, at all the workshops that we developed with the, with the client group, et cetera. It was, it was always like both practices presenting. Yeah, yeah. Talking to the group. I um, think that's very important in its own way. I really, really respect and admire when practices are able to, you know, have it from the start to the finish and mm. just be able to engage, especially when I think it's very rare to have user groups who are also part of the clientele to an extent as well, because I think that's quite tricky in able to distinguish the users as well as the people yeah. who are commissioning the project sometimes. Definitely, yeah, and particularly in apartment projects. I mean, to have the resident cohort as part of the client, as your client group, before we even have a site mm. is pretty amazing. So we were able to, you know, develop project briefs before we even knew what the site was. And then once we had the site, we were able to refine that brief to the particulars of that site. Oh, okay. Through a very engaged process with, with the, the residents. So when you say brief before the site even happened, mm. which doesn't happen quite often, mm. I think I've only come across one or two projects mm. that had yeah. that. So when you said the brief, was it more of that physical type or was it more of the outcome in terms of occupancy or the visions of it? Yeah, yeah, both really. So um, because they were interested in delivering a co-housing community and co-housing has a couple of key spaces that, that kind of distinguish it as a co-housing community or co-housing development. Mm -hmm. So some of those spaces include a communal kitchen and dining space that can allow all 50 residents to, say, gather mm. within that dining space and cook a meal and, you know, celebrate kind of birthdays and Christmas and that kind of, <laughs> those kind of events. So that's like a key criteria of co-housing. Other, other spaces included, include like guest rooms as well. Yep. So rather than, yeah, those 29 apartments, so rather than all 29 of those apartments having a, an extra bedroom just for the guests that they might have stay with them, you know, one week a year, there's actually two guest rooms that can be hired out through the year mm. for whenever else. People have family come and stay or friends come and stay. They can use that. So, And then, there, we, yeah, there's a whole range of kind of other community spaces, yeah. uh, which we can get into a bit later if you want to talk about the exact spaces. But, yeah, th peppered throughout the building as well. So yeah. there was that kind of tangible brief, but then there is definitely, like, the outcomes, as you talk about as well. And mm. um, it's, you know, the building really needs to kind of facilitate um, – a whole range of, of sort of functions, um, incidental kind of bump-ins between <laughs> residents, yeah. spaces where they could have large gatherings or spaces where they might have, you know, a one-on-one -on -one time with, with people or, um, yeah, kind of really facilitate that, that kind of co-housing lifestyle mm. or a community lifestyle, yeah. Mm. Would you say this brief was quite similar for the other collaborations? I'm not too sure how much communication yeah. you had with other firms yeah. that were invited, but yeah. just out of curiosity. Um, we had lots of communication with all the other practices in the Yeah, it was quite a close, the whole village itself was quite a close collaboration between the other practices, but as was the brief of ours was, was quite distinct in that it was that co-housing model, Yeah. whereas the other buildings went through kind of the, the standard Nightingale balloting process where there wasn't a, a user group or a resident group 
until about the town planning stage or post-town planning where they balloted the apartments. So whilst we had our residents even before the site, the others didn't really have their residents until kind of post-town planning mm-hmm. stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So going to like now that the site has been acquired mm. and then knowing how much space is there, can be built on could you tell us about like how has that brief shifted ever since or any drawbacks mm. or any more exciting opportunities that yeah. was a bit of a curveball <laughs> uh, yeah there's always the the realities of delivering a project uh you know it's still subject to all the kind of commercial realities you know cost cost time quality so what we did throughout the design and documentation process is we ran a a whole series of workshops with the resident group to, I guess, one, keep them informed of each step along the way and kind of those pressures that were on the project Mm -hmm. and two, to, to allow their brief to develop and we developed it with them. So prior to each of those workshops, we set up survey monkeys that that had a whole series of questions um, that we were able to sort of distill into outcomes that we could present back to the group like as the feedback came in. Each of those workshops uh, sort of focused on a, either like a different area or a different outcome of the building. So sometimes we were just focusing on the built form of the building or mm. we were just focusing on the interiors of the building or we were just focusing on the common spaces of the building. Yeah. So in each of those workshops, we were able to kind of present to the resident group the pressures or constraints of the site or the, yeah. real, the, you know, budgetary realities of the project, but then also take their feedback on how they then wanted to mm. adapt to those. So mm. um, a significant amount of the, if not all of the brief was pretty much delivered in the <laughs> end, I'd say. Um, okay. There were some compromises along the way, but they're all, like you said, there were also like unexpected outcomes, like great outcomes as well through that process and I think being part of the the wider village actually will definitely enhance the overall outcome of the co-housing project so rather than Mm -hmm. you know that whilst they are their own distinct building within that village they are immediately part of Mm. a larger community of people being part of that village Mm. Um, and there's even sort of shared kind of outdoor spaces between each of those other buildings that never would have been possible mm. if it was a standalone building yeah, yeah um and yes and you know some of those those constraints meant that we we delivered some spaces that were purely cold shells so they weren't fitted necessarily fitted out in the way that the, the group was was hoping might be delivered but i think you know upon reflection and they've been in there nearly 12 months now they don't mind that outcome so much because it allows them to evolve those spaces over time. Yeah. Because um, the resident group will change over time. Yeah. Um, and they can adapt those spaces to to that resident group. So, mm. you know, they've got like study spaces that could eventually become, if they've got a whole number of teenagers, they might have a teenage hangout space. <laughs> or, you know, if half the group's into yoga, they'll turn them into a yoga space. And, yeah. And that kind of thing. So... There's, there's kind of now this built-in flexibility mm-hmm. within the building that, that perhaps wasn't necessarily there yeah. originally. Yeah, I'm curious to know about, like, those cold shell spaces, mm. all the spaces for flexibility mm. in terms of 
do you then just see it's a bit of an off topic but do you hmm. see yourself then coming back in for instance just making the modifications yeah. or like what type of interventions have you added so it increases that flexibility to it yeah um i don't know if we personally will be will be back there <laughs> today it might just be the the resident group kind of you know there's such a strong community I kind of love to tackle projects as a group together and, you know, with 50 people, they've got all sorts of different expertise mm. that they can kind of bring together to do those spaces. They have asked us for some advice on how they might go about that mm. along the way, but whether we're directly involved in delivering or changing those spaces, I'm not sure mm. yet. But, you know, down in the basement level, there's two cold shells that they've fitted out since they've been in and one's like a workshop and the other one's a music room. Mm. So they've got those spaces that could easily be adapted yeah, to yeah. something else over time. If, if no one was playing instruments anymore, they yeah. can turn that space into something else. And there's also a couple of spaces up on level four that they're still working, currently working their way through what, <laughs> what are going to become with those. Yeah. yeah, I'm just surprised because it's 50 people mm-hmm. and I think it really does take a similar mindset or obviously it wouldn't happen if you are not a group of people with like similar aspirations mm. and all a part of me is just wondering whether there have been like strong personalities that has made the brief a little bit challenging or like <laughs> any small internal conflicts not not particularly for gothic reasons yeah. but it's just i'd like yeah. to know how are those obstacles or like are those conversations or debates being navigated mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah throughout. sure no you're yeah absolutely right when we ran those workshops, each of those workshops, I think we had seven, eight, nine of those workshops, and they'd often take like a whole Saturday. So it was, mm. it was quite a big day um, <laughs> with the whole group. You know, 80 to 90% of the residents would be available on those days. And as in any group of people, there's always two or three who will speak up more than others. And we were conscious of that because you hear from, you know, a few people more than you hear from others who may not want to you know, put their hand up and talk in front of a wider group. We were conscious that, you know, the people who spoke the most weren't necessarily reflective of the whole group. Mm-hmm. So we, we did have to be mindful of that. That's where the surveys were really good because people, like pre-workshop surveys, mm-hmm. because you get everyone's thoughts in those surveys and at the end it can sort of spit out, mm-hmm. like, the results and what the majority of the group's looking. And we can kind of present that data back to the group and say, mm-hmm. well, this is what the majority, it looks like the majority are, are after here and that mm. may uh, may or may not align with the people who speak up more than others. Mm. Urban Coop themselves have developed over time dispute resolution protocols within their group about how they go about coming to decisions and decision-making process. So it's, it's incredibly detailed and um, yeah, it's amazing <laughs> what they've put together there. Yeah, They did a lot of that. Those where they did have conflict or disagreements, mm. they did a lot of that without us. So they sort of did, took that offline. That's good. Yeah, so that that helped us a lot because if and and we also had we and most of our communication when we, one of those workshops was with through through two of the representatives, Brenda and Alex. Mm-hmm. So they would often distill that information, you know, from the group before bringing it back to us. They were amazing in that sense that they could deal with all that together yeah which i would imagine bringing together a whole bunch of random people to go into an apartment building would be much more difficult to kind of have those processes 
imply yeah. so I have that, that kind of dispute resolution process. It's not even dispute resolution, it's just decision making. I actually call it decision making. Right? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, think, I think dispute resolution is fine because I'd like to think that is a very common language that we use. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. What the language is. And it sounds really lovely in terms of how they distill it because I personally think that it demonstrates how much trust there is between the community itself and then with the architects. Uh, just in terms of understanding what each party needs and the terms of the communication and the language mm. going forward. So moving on to your team now, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> how has that process been for you guys in terms of developing the interiors as well while understanding the breathe while also working on the yeah. exteriors of Urban Coop? Yeah. Well, it was amazing for opportunity for us because we were relatively young practice mm. at the time when we were engaged on this project. So... For us, it was a massive learning opportunity. Like, Brief had that experience of, of delivering Nightingale One and the Commons before that. So, and we're very interested in kind of that, that sort of typology. Mm. So, for us, it was great to be able to feed off them that, that learning. I think what we brought is that kind of smaller practice, kind of boutique service, I guess, mm. in a way that. Generally, you know, on all the projects within here, Michael and I are, are kind of intimately involved. We like having a smaller practice. You know, we're, we're 10 people now, but we like being on the cold face, so to speak. Yeah. So I think the fact that we, either Michael or I, are, could always be at those workshops, I can always be on the phone or on the email to Alex and Brenda dealing with the project, mm-hmm. um, you know, on, on an as-need basis. So we sort of brought that service from the director's and that design sensibility, you know, along with Breathe's design sensibility and experience to the projects, we met many times, like just as two practices to present to each other. Yeah. What we'd been working on, there was, you know, there was always robust conversations about what we both perceived as, as good outcomes. Mm. So I think ultimately the project's better and, yeah. and richer for that collaboration because in a way because of our inexperience we brought a naivety to it mm-hmm. that perhaps brought new ideas yes to to the project as well and then you know breathe kind of had that experience to to deliver the project too so. yeah from the sounds of it i i am a huge believer and agree in terms of the naivety because i'd like to think it's that sense of hopefulness and mm. optimism that yeah. is within the projects and all so in saying that what were the biggest highlights for you within this process or for your team as well as I think what has been the biggest lessons uh, from this project as you said Mm. you guys were relatively young when when this project first commenced and how have you applied it going forward to your other projects um I think like in terms of this like highlights there you know the project was not without its challenges of course it's Mm -hmm. like incredibly complex mm. project. The highlights really were working with the Urban Coop mm-hmm. themselves, mm-hmm. incredible group, like incredibly unique project, yeah. amazingly well-organised group. The value alignment was perfect between kind of all our practices and the mm. group itself. The collaboration with Breathe was like just a great opportunity for us to learn from that experience of theirs and then also being, being part of the wider village as well. And, you know, being part of sort of delivering a very unusual project or, you know, unique project within Melbourne. 
you know, we worked with, also worked with Havel, Kenny Nolan, Claire Cousins, Austin Maynard Architects as well. They're yeah. all part of that village too. So to, you know, be sitting in the room and presenting to each other our projects and kind of running design workshops amongst all those architects was a really great, exciting experience. And I think everyone probably enjoyed that part of the process. And then just, you know, the general, just the general learnings along the way of, how to deliver that kind of project like we could all do it probably more efficiently next time <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I don't know I'm not quite sure no, no 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 that's okay it's just um of course efficiency it's it's not easy especially just with your recent events of resources and supplies mm. and I'd like to imagine you know the, our own groups of our consultants because obviously everybody have their different priorities and also I'd imagine those have been like stresses in terms of time crunching and delivering yeah. it on time and all all right so yeah we, yeah we weren't immune to the uh the <laughs> realities of COVID and yeah <laughs> the time pressures and supply pressures there that definitely um had an impact on the project like every single project yeah did yeah. it impact you quite significantly or was it that you had a, quite a solid foundation from the sounds of it at the start that it just made the project small bumps, but it was a relatively smooth sailing delivery. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. It, it was, it was, it finished late, but what project hasn't in the last <laughs> couple of years? So, no, there were some, there were definitely stressful moments because, because of the realities of, of the impact, mm. you know, supply chain issues and, people and etc so yeah it wasn't immune to that it did cause stress at times but as the directors of the the village like the all of all the practices we did meet at least fortnightly every week through the construction of the project to kind of yeah. flesh all those out along with our project managers Fontic to flesh those issues out and how we might kind of overcome them well, firstly, congratulations for becoming them. And it's really exciting to see it. As you say, it has been nearly a year now for mm. people who have moved in. And or are you able to share with us a little mm. bit of feedback in terms of yeah. how it has been or how has the project evolved since occupancy? Yeah, no, of course. I was even just there on Monday walking around. It's looking incredible right now and, you know, give it another six months be looking more amazing but the urban coop residents absolutely love living there i think it's even better than they imagined from, oh, from all reports so the spaces particularly the the kitchen dining space is absolutely like the heart and soul of their building mm. and it gets used for all sorts of activities not just for you know cooking and eating but you know people work down in that space during mm. the day They've got a piano in the space. They've got a kid's corner set up <laughs> with a bunch of toys yeah. in there. Um, people don't feel like sitting in their apartment. They go down in there and make a coffee and, and mm. then sit down at the table and chat with whoever's there at a time. So it's really supporting kind of all the things that mm. they were hoping, mm. hoping for. And I think that, you know, finding themselves part of the village too, that they're in, in amongst, you know, really like-minded set of people yeah as part of that kind of local community as well mm. the tenancies are starting to be populated now as well the ground floor tenancies so that's really starting to bring some life mm -hmm. 
down on that ground plane, the gardens are starting to become more established. Yeah. It'll be amazing seeing them grown out a bit more in even 12 months' time, but yeah. the greenery is really coming back. I don't know if you've seen images of the place, the area before it started, but it was, yeah. a, it was almost an industrial mm. wasteland, you know, <laughs> for want of a better term, but yeah. it was just a concrete jungle mm. before mm. Um, and really run-down buildings. So, yeah, it's brought a liveliness to the whole area, yeah. which is, is quite incredible. It sounds like it's, in a way, it's not only for the residents, but it's also giving back to the community or at least giving a bit back to the site context itself, which is always quite nice to see. Yeah, it definitely is. And the benefit of the collaboration with the other practices mm -hmm. um, is that we were able to make some of those kind of city-making decisions together in the within the village. So... Even moves like the bike path runs along the train line there, but it was a very narrow, very dangerous bike path. So mm -hmm. there was a decision made to push all the buildings back off the bike path to allow the bike path to have more breathing room mm -hmm. along it. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of got a, now got a wider bike path corridor adjacent to the city. Lovely. We were able to effectively close down Duckett Street to then have kind of seating, planting, Kind of outdoor spaces that the buildings could spill out onto. Mm. And the benefit of the six buildings is we're able to put a single substation into one of the buildings rather than all six buildings having to have a substation down on the ground. Yeah. That will sort of really freeze up that ground floor space. There's a shared basement that runs under, you know, three of the buildings and there's the driveway only has to come off mm. one of the sides too. Mm. So we're able to keep that ground plane really active by reducing those kind of street services and utilities that you might otherwise find. And as mentioned earlier, a part of our site was sold back to the local council mm -hmm. who then turned that into a pocket park mm. for the area too. So now we've got this kind of amazing pocket park adjacent to the, to the development as well. Yeah, it sounds like just from what you described, I feel like that is your favourite part or like one of your favourite outcomes. Mm. Mm of Urban Coop and also just being part of that collaborative process. This is one of my questions I'm being curious okay. about. Do you think this is all possible because of the site or do you think this could have worked anywhere else? So that a similar size parcel of land for the Nightingale village mm. is available in a different context. Yeah. Do you think this outcome would happen or would you like to imagine something else out of it? I think... Every local site will have its opportunities and constraints. Yes. And I think you just respond appropriately to that local context. Um, this site, we were hemmed in by the, the train line down one side with the bike path adjacent to it. Mm. Hope Street, which is a, is a pretty robust street, for want of a better term. <laughs> and then some of the smaller kind of adjacent streets, you know, allowed that opportunity to kind of close them off had to really give back over to kind of pedestrians or the local residents. Mm -hmm. that, that site allowed that. Another site may or may mm -hmm. not allow those same, same outcomes, but I think generally you still look for similar outcomes where you, you know, really want to activate that ground floor mm. plane, not just for the residents, but to also give back to the local community in a way like, you know, looking for those great kind of, urban design outcomes as well. Yeah. No matter where the site is. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And 
having said then, looking forward into the future, apart from Urban Coop, mm. do you have any other, is architecture, architecture working on any other projects that are quite similar mm. in terms of the collaborative process or at least the workshops that are quite <laughs> intense or quite far yeah. from the sounds yeah. of it? Yeah, uh, the workshops are great. Um, no, not currently. I mean, current housing's not particularly common in Australia. Yes. So it's a bit of a European model that's, you know, very slowly finding its way here. But it's a pretty unique kind of project in the Australian context at the moment. So mm. if more come our way, we would we would jump at the opportunity to do it again. We love engaging with our clients. Like, we love... You know, so much of our, we see architecture as, as really people, mm-hmm. you know, what, what are the greatest outcomes we can get yeah. for the users, occupants, wider community, yeah. what kind of impact can, can that have? So and we do a lot of single family homes. Um, what this allowed us was to design a home for 50 people, which is <laughs> <laughs> it's just a pretty unusual project when you think of it in that way. So, yeah. But we would love to, you know, take all the learnings from this project and mm. you know translate that to the next one should it come across come, yeah come away. yeah it's interesting because it's nice just having different opinions and it's good because we are quite a multicultural community mm. here in Australia so I think it is important that we do take lessons from overseas as well yeah definitely so I'm pretty sure it's a redundant question because I think I may have asked so many times but <laughs> it's probably in different aspects but do you, for yourself, what mm. do you hope for the residents? Do you have a letter for the residents are living at Urban Coop? Or do you have mes- um, a message for others who are interested in designing similar typologies? Yeah. So. Well, I, th- I think what we we hope is that the community sticks together. They, you know, love their time in the building. It would be great to, you know, I'm still, still in contact with Brenda and Alex quite regularly. But I'd love to sit down with them in, you know, a year's time, five <laughs> years' time, ten years' time. Yeah, yeah. To sort of see what worked, what didn't work, mm-hmm. um, what surprises popped up along the way. Mm. It'd be great to kind of get that that kind of post-occupancy feedback Yeah, yeah. over time to yes. see how that, that worked. Uh, you know, that process of engagement with the residents throughout, we kind of had to create that as we went because there wasn't really... It was, you know, so unusual to engage with that many people, mm. or that many end users on mm. a project that, you know, those workshops we had to, we sort of had to develop them each and every time. We admittedly, we didn't necessarily do a great job the first, on the first one. And we, we took that feedback from Urban Coop yeah. and with them developed formatting the the style of those projects yeah. each and every time we got, you know, at the end, we definitely were in the groove. Everyone knew what I was what I were doing. Um, so it was kind of great to, you know, it was great, interesting and fun to sort of develop that workshop process. So, mm. Yeah, and working with the with the group to do that. Yeah. yeah. Well, hopefully somebody can take on a series. I don't know, because I am aware that there are some people who like to do the series of like every several years time, can pick it up and therefore be able to document yeah. it. Or who knows, you guys can do yeah. a publication yeah, yeah, yeah. of the song. <laughs> But yeah, well, thank you so much for being part of this, Nick. And it was a really lovely conversation. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you. 
This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest interviewer, Kimberly Huey, and our guest, registered architect and director at Architecture Architecture, Nick James. All of the projects designed by Architecture Architecture are a delight to see, regardless of scale, and I was able to visit their award-winning renovation project Sunday last year, and I'm still blown away by the thought that goes into their buildings. It's absolutely incredible, and it is, regardless of scale, they're an amazing practice. So we look forward to speaking with you again in the future, Nick. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. If you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy and the Imagine production team was Kimberly Huey and Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.